Tuesday morning at our staff meeting, and then we also pray in our uh, Tuesday evening elders meeting for the, uh, your requests and encouragements. So please let us know, either on paper or through the app. Uh, let us know you're here, and let us know uh, it, it's our privilege to pray over you here today. So we're entering our teaching time here in our worship service, and this morning we want to start a new series of messages titled, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made Your Body God's Image. Say that with me. Fearfully and Wonderfully Made Your Body God's Image. That's where we're going this morning. It's a very important series that we're starting here on the, the body, the body. Now let me begin with a question. Those of you who are movie buffs, okay, would, would anybody happen to know the name of the highest grossing box office movie of all time? Anybody? Just shout it out if you know it. Someone said Avatar. That's right. That's absolutely correct. That's right. Very good. If I had a prize, Darren, I'd give it to you. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. You can have my bottle of water if you want. So, No, I need that. Forget it. Get your own. Anyway, welcome to Windsor Road. <laughs> we want you to feel hospitable. Just get your own water. <laughs> anyway. Avatar. Yeah, 2.8 billion and change. Yeah. This futuristic movie, this story of humans on a distant moon called Pandora, inhabited by a race known as the Navi, tall, blue-skinned humanoids, to infiltrate this race, humans utilized specifically created um, hybrid bodies called avatars. And the special effects in the movie were special. Uh, I, I, it was like in 2009, but I still remember seeing it on IMAX. And at one moment, I felt like I was actually soaring, flying. Avatar projected a view of human life in which the body is exchangeable. Uh, the main character, Sully, is a paraplegic, and through his avatar, he could enjoy the use of fully working limbs. So, so the movie assumes that one's body is a costume that can be put on and taken off. The real you can live in a different body, even a different humanoid species, without changing who you are. So you have a personal identity expressed through your body, but it's not dependent on your body. You could just as easily be who you are in another body. Avatar preaches a kind of gospel. It's a very common uh, man-centered doctrine about the human body. Uh, one writer summarized it this way. You're merely a passenger riding around in a skin-tight race car. Okay. A New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, once wrote, the great controlling myth of our time has been the belief that within each of us there is a real inner private self 
long buried beneath layers of socialization and attempted cultural and religious control and needing to be rediscovered if we are to live authentic lives. Now that notion pushed to its logical conclusions becomes a ground upon which you view right and wrong. You see, whatever this true self wants becomes king. And I've got to be authentic, and this quest will validate my behavior, and my longings and my yearnings deep within have to be granted in order for me to be true to who I am. So my body becomes incidental to my identity. What really counts is you know, what I find on the inside. That's, that's the gospel of Avatar. And this kind of thinking has huge, hugely influenced our culture and, quite frankly, the church culture in America. So much so that in earlier times, Christians would esteem sacrifice and service to others as the highest kind of virtue. It's now more common today in pulpits to talk about the need to be true to yourself. And so in our culture, today's hero is not the person who self-sacrifices, but the person who self-expresses. So the idea is that the real you is the inner self you understand yourself to be and your body is really not that significant it's just a body it's not really you the gospel of avatar my grandfather was a man named louis roscoe phillips there he is 30 years of age that was the year he married um, my grandmother lillian violet jones Phillips family, Jones family, they shared farms in Windyville, Missouri. They got married and he went west all the way to Eldorado, Kansas. He worked in the boiler room at the Skelly Oil Refinery uh, for 30 some odd years, got his gold watch and retired. You can still go to Eldorado and smell the oil from the refinery. At 14 years of age, at 14 years of age, had my grandfather gone to a physician and said, I feel like a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would have likely replied, well, Roscoe, we need to figure out a way to help you change your internal way of thinking so that aligns more with external reality. These days, some physicians might say, well, Roscoe, we need to figure out a way to change your external reality so that it aligns with your internal way of thinking. And why would some say that? Because today, the granting of decisive authority to one's inner feelings is the cultural status quo. These days, one's inward psychological convictions are understood as a non-negotiable reality to which all external realities must be made to conform. 
these days one's inner self and one's inner beliefs are assumed as infallible and inerrant for the self. I am very suspicious of that assumption. Recently, a 22-year-old swimmer named Leah Thomas from the University of Pennsylvania won the NCAA championship in the women's 500-meter freestyle. What's notable is that Thomas became the first transgender swimmer to win an NCAA title. For the first three seasons, Leah then known as William, competed on the men's swim team. While on the men's team, William never performed well enough to even qualify for the NCAA championships. But this year, 2022, as Leah Thomas, a fifth-year senior, the victory was won by about one and a half seconds. And even former women's tennis legend and LGBT activist Martina Navratilova protested. It's not fair for women to race against transgender Leah Thomas. I, I happen to agree with that for different reasons. All these vignettes, Avatar, Louis Roscoe, and Leah Thomas serve to explain why I want us to spend a series of Sundays learning the biblical foundations for the body, the human body. What does the Bible say about the nature of the body? What does the Bible teach about what the human body is? And by that I mean when the biblical authors first wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to their original audiences, what was their intended meaning? That's what I'm talking about. And so over the next several Sundays, I would like for us to take a journey talking about various aspects of human embodiment, various aspects of human embodiment, uh, such as the gendered body, the sexual body, the particular body, the social body, the, the holy or sanctified body, the disabled body, the mortal body, the resurrection body, and yes, Christ's incarnate body. Now, I'm not going to be able to talk about every one of these aspects this morning. So, stick around, okay? But I do want us to begin by considering some, some basic building blocks about the body. And, beloved, as, as I look out to our congregation, um, I feel so privileged as your pastor to, to walk with you and to live with you and to grow old together, okay? to grow old together. And, um, and my privilege as your pastor is to help us see and accept and to live a, a winsome, embodied life based on the truth of God's word. I want to help us taste and see that the Lord is good. My, my task is to help us experience 
the truth of Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Amen? Now, I will remind us here that that God's word on the human body differs from man's word on the human body. The city of heaven and the city of man have different assumptions about embodiment. And I want us to be aware of what those assumptions are. And I want us, in the words of Jesus, to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. That's what I want. I want us to know truth, and I want us to communicate truth diplomatically and attractively as ambassadors for Christ. Our local church is an embassy of heaven. And if you're in Christ, you have been appointed as an ambassador, a diplomat of the king. And so let's consider this time uh, uh, ambassadorial training from the king. And I'll just begin by stating what appears to me to be the fundamental difference between the city of heaven and the city of man. It's, it's quite possibly the most contested two verses in this entire discussion. Would you please write down 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. It, it's this right here. The Apostle Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now I'm persuaded that one of the most damaging lies from the evil one is this. It's the lie that says you are your own. To be your own and to belong to yourself means that the most fundamental truth about existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails, that that you are responsible for living a life of purpose and defining your own identity and interpreting meaningful events and choosing your own values and electing where you belong? If I belong to myself, well, then I'm the only one who can set limits on who I am or what I can do, and no one else has the right to define me or to choose my journey in life or to assure me that I'm okay. I belong to myself. But, beloved... The freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Because once I'm liberated from all social, moral, natural, religious values, then I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God or judge to justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. And this burden manifests itself as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression because everyone else now is also working frantically to craft and express their own identity. Society becomes a space of vicious competition 
between individuals vying for attention and meaning and significance, not unlike the contrived drama of reality TV. And some of us respond to this competition by rising to the challenge and submitting to the tyranny of self-improvement which demands constant optimizing and reinventing and always making healthier choices and always discovering ways to do more and try harder. And others discover that they can't keep up and, and then just kind of numb themselves with food or drink or sex or sleep or entertainment. What's the use? That's the fundamental lie from the evil one in our modern world, that we are our own. And until we see this lie for what it is, until we work to uproot it from our hearts, from our culture, and replant a conception of human beings as belonging to God and not ourselves, most of our efforts at improving the world will be nothing but glorified band-aids. Is there a better way? Yes! Yes, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Page 1 and page 2 of your Bibles. That's where we're going to be here today. We begin with the created body. The created body. So we gather in this space as created embodied people. We're, we're sitting and uh, you know, we're, with our eyes and ears, we're taking in the teaching and the worship experience. With your brain, you're processing. With your hands, you're taking notes or typing in your phones or flipping over to your pages. We are embodied people engaged in bodily activities. Living life on earth requires a body. And so, what is the purpose of that body? And here it is. It's a big idea. It's where we're going today. Three words, made to magnify. Made to magnify, say that with me, one, two, three. Made to magnify, again, made to magnify, made to magnify. The purpose of your body is not self-expression, rather God magnification. And as we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we'll see that God made our bodies, our very selves, to mirror, reflect, and magnify his glory. Magnify his glory. Now there is a kind of, there are two kinds of magnification. There's microscopic magnification and telescopic magnification. Microscopic magnification makes what is really small look big. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about telescopic magnification that is a magnification that clarifies that which is big god is big made to magnify i've been uniquely made in a fearful manner to magnify the lord i've been uniquely made in a fearful manner to magnify the lord isn't that wonderful i don't have to try to hunt down or figure out my purpose I've already been given my purpose. My task is now to live it out because I'm made to magnify. And the Bible tells us in the beginning the truth about who we are. We are embodied people created by the artistic hand of Almighty God. The very first verse of the Bible explains how we got here. 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 is this magnificent creation poem. Now, I believe that Genesis comes from the hand of Moses, who wrote to Israel following their redemption from slavery. So it's as if God said to Israel, now that I have rescued you from Pharaoh through miraculous plagues and the crossing through the Red Sea, now that I've rescued you, let me introduce myself to you. So the primary purpose of Genesis is theological. Genesis 1 is not a biology book. Now, while I do not hold to atheistic Darwinian evolution, please don't expect the Bible to answer questions which the original audience never asked. God is communicating to Israel who He is and then who they are because of who He is. And it's in that order. Because a distortion of the self arises from a distortion of God. And in Moses' day, Israel was surrounded by pagan nations who believed that the world was created in the aftermath of cosmic battles between the gods. That's not Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, in its original context, was unique among all of the, the other pagan nations of the ancient Near East. Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning, God, the almighty, sovereign, self-existing God is on display. He never had a start. He's always been. And he is the God who speaks and things happen. He speaks and things happen. And in Genesis chapter 1, each day begins with the phrase, and God said, and God made. Do you see it? And God saw. And God blessed. God is the subject of each sentence. Friends, the Bible begins with God, not with us. Greg Kokel, uh, who leads an organization called Stand to Reason. Greg has preached here at least twice at Windsor Road. He once wrote, many people are confused at this point. When discouragement, disillusionment, and defeat creep into their lives, they're caught by surprise. They thought the Bible was about them. They thought the Bible was about their happiness, their comfort, their personal prosperity. Then they wonder what went wrong when things go in another direction. How could God let this happen to me, they asked. They thought that with God in their lives, that they would be the center of his attention and everything was going to be easier. And then they're caught off guard when things work out differently. And then Greg says this. This is so powerful to me. The Bible is not so much about God's plan for your life as it is about your life for God's plan. All creation exists by the word of God. Furthermore, this, this creation majestic theological poem says that there's divine order. The sun, the moon, and the stars rule over the realm of night and day and the, the birds and the fish rule over the realm of the air and the sea and the animals rule over the realm of the sea and the land and in verse 26 God says that human life rules them all 
Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created the man and the woman as the pinnacle of his artistic, inventive powers. Everything until now, the light, the expanse, the vegetation, the celestial bodies, the bodies of the fish and the sea creatures and the land creatures, all of these prepare the reader for God's climactic creative event. And notice in verse 27 the phrase, God created man in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. What is that? That's repetition and parallelism. Created, created, created. Embodied human life comes by God's creative work. You have a body. You are a body. The Adam, Hebrew for the man, is the last of the creatures listed in the hierarchy. And once he appears, God's work is done. And notice in verses 26 and 27, the phrase, in our image, in his own image. So unique in all creation, God created human life in his own image. That is, men and women are distinct from and higher than other animal life. The, the word image comes from the word to chisel referring to the chiseling of a statue. And a statue is intended to represent that which is higher than itself. Okay? And so just as God speaks and commands and names and blesses and creates, and just as God contemplates and organizes and plans and executes, just as God moves and exercises freely, we're, we're kind of like that. We have the capacity of self-consciousness and the capacity to read and the capacity of speech and the capacity to create and the capacity to contemplate and to organize. At the same time, to be created in the image of God does not make us God. And the core of the very first temptation in Genesis chapter 3 is when the, the, the first lie, the first lie, you will be like God. Well, having evaluated his creative work at the conclusion of chapter 1, which includes the creation of the body, God, God, verse 31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis, who gave us the Chronicles of Narnia. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity thoroughly approves of the body. He said, God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That's why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think that this is rather crude and unspiritual. God doesn't. God invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. Oh, and then if we go into Genesis chapter 2, we read a, a, a kind of a complimentary accounting of creation. And, and here's what I want you to see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Notice how Adam was created. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So that's the opposite of how many people today view themselves. So what Genesis does not say is, God, God did not first create a soul called Adam and then look around for something physical to put that soul into as though the soul was the real Adam and his body was a plastic container to store it in. God actually started with matter. He formed the body from the ground. And notice that verse 7 doesn't say the Lord God formed the man from the ground. No, it's as if to emphasize the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. See? So he formed the, a body from the ground, which was then brought to life. So you are an animated body, not an incarnated soul. Your, your, your body is not fundamentally a soul that's been shoved into the nearest lump of flesh as if any old body would do. A scholar by the name of Carl Truman said, there is no I behind or before the body. There, there is no us that exists logically, let alone chronologically, independently of our flesh, and that is then randomly assigned to the bodies that we have. Our bodies are an integral part of who we are. And I do not occupy my body as I might occupy a house or a spacesuit or a, a, a deck chair at the beach. On the contrary, it's an integral part of me, inseparable from who I am. So you have a body, you are a body. We are embodied people by the creative hand of Almighty God, and your best life is the one that magnifies God with the body He made for you. And, and so here's really the principle. The principle is this, you make it, you own it. You make it, you own it. God, God, that's why we are not our own. That's why we belong to God, because, because he created us. We're his. We're his by creation, and we're, here, we're his by redemption in Christ. And to the person who believes that you can do whatever you want with your own body as long as you don't hurt somebody else, let's listen to C.S. Lewis again. He was my friend in the office this week. And he gives wise counsel. 
Lewis says, let's go back to the person who says that a thing cannot be wrong unless it hurts some other human being. He, he, you know, he quite understands that he must not damage the other ships in the convoy, but he honestly thinks that what he does to his own ship is his own business. And then Lewis says this, but does it not make a great difference whether his ship is his own property or not? Does it not make a great difference whether I am, so to speak, the landlord of my own mind or body or only a tenant responsible to the real landlord? Because if somebody else made me for his own purposes, then I shall have a lot of duties which I would not have if I simply belonged to myself. That's why I'm telling you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20. That's a key verse. That's a key verse. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so, beloved, because our bodies have been made to magnify our all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God, you can therefore trust your body. You, you can trust your body. Listen, listen, a thousand years from now, archaeologists will uncover the bones of human beings here in Champaign County. And they're going to do a genetic analysis. And here's what they're going to discover. XX or XY. Male or female. That's reality. You can trust your body. Beloved, no one is born in the wrong body. Personality and behavior do not define one's sex. I'm not saying that children or students or adults do not struggle with self-identity or self-image or body type. Well, of course. Of course, this world is sinful, broken, and fallen. And the sinful effects of this world splash over us. And, and guess what? We contribute to its sinfulness too. And that's why our church needs to be a safe place to walk with strugglers because, because everybody struggles. Everybody struggles. And we need to be a safe place to walk strugglers to, to hope and to truth. You can trust your body. Your heart, however, is another story. In a world that affirms bodily conformity to the heart, Jeremiah says otherwise. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And this is why the wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 speak loudly. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Your body matters to God. He knows your body. He made your body. He owned your body. He cares about your body. And at the center of our faith is the belief that by coming to earth as one of us, Christ could die for our sins, rise to new life, bringing us into fellowship with God, and begin the process of putting right all that's wrong. 
But at the center of that claim, tucked away where we don't always see it, is the notion that to become one of us, Jesus had to become flesh, to become a human person. He needed to become a human body. John chapter 1, verse 14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the claim that we celebrate at Christmas, that God became a man. He became flesh. It doesn't mean that he simply put on human flesh for a few years. Oh, he could have. He could have come as a ready-made 30-something-year-old male prepared to immediately gather his disciples and teach about God's kingdom and go to the cross. But to become one of us, he took on more. He became a fetus going through puberty, a baby in a cot, a toddler stumbling about as he learned to walk, a fully grown man. It wasn't enough to simply have a body. He needed to truly be one. So Christ's incarnation is the highest compliment the human body has ever been paid. God not only created our bodies and enjoyed knitting billions of them together, He created one for Himself. And not just for Christmas. Jesus' body is for all eternity. You understand that, don't you? After His death, He was raised bodily, and after His resurrection, He returned to His Father in a resurrection body. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he did not ditch his flesh like a space shuttle ditches the booster rockets. Becoming human was not meant to be reversible. It's permanent. Now, a human body sits at the right hand of God the Father. Christ occupies the very center of heaven. Amen? And now, in a world of confusion... He has commissioned us as his ambassadors to represent him, to mirror his glory and splendor and beauty, to live and to love in a way that causes the world to thirst for him, that when people see our lives, they think of him. Your life is remarkable. Introduce me to your God. That's what we mean when we say, made to magnify. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, God, when you speak, you don't.